Peter Ferdinand Drucker was born on November 19, 1909, and died on November 11, 2005. Mr. Drucker was an Austrian-American management consultant, educator, an author whose writings contributed to the philosophical and practical foundations of the modern business corporation. With his influence over how so many would eventually view their businesses and the successes there within, uh, he would impart practical advice on how you too could use your time well in whatever industry you worked in. He once made this remark, quote, time is the scarcest resource and unless it is managed, nothing else can be managed. Well, in one of his books, The Executive or Effective Executive, he expounds on this concept further uh, by exhorting working professionals and business owners on how to use their time well, or as the subtitle of the book says, The Definitive Guide to Getting the Right Things Done. So let's, let's hear what Mr. Drucker had to say about how we could use our time well to be productive if we were to get the right things done. He says this, quote, time is totally irreplaceable. Within limits, we can substitute one resource for another. Copper for aluminum, for instance. We can substitute capital for human labor. We can use more knowledge and more brawn. But there is no substitute for time. Everything requires time. It is the only truly universal condition. All work takes time and it uses up time. Yet most people take for granted this unique, irreplaceable, and necessary resource. Time. We all possess it. Most of us think we don't have enough of it. And as human beings, we are all bound by it. I mean, think about it for a moment. There was a time in the past that you and I did not exist on earth. So before 1985, Blake Boylston did not exist on earth. No human being knew him because he was not around. And one day in the future, Blake Boylston and everyone in this building will no longer be around on earth. And just give it one or two generations after we die, most of us, will not even be remembered. Time goes by quickly, doesn't it? We've probably all said it before. Time flies when you're having fun. When we're really young, recess at school goes by too fast. But riding in the family car on a road trip, now that takes forever. We've all probably said this too. That was a long time ago. That was back in the day. When we get older, we tend to say things like, where did the time go? 
Time goes by so fast. I wish time would slow down. For those of us who have, still have the big, massive, bulky family albums, you know what I'm talking about. It's got the flimsy plastic inserts where you get your Polaroid pictures and those Kodak pictures and you cram them in one insert and so they sit back to back so you can cram as many as you can in. Every once in a while you might pull it out, kind of pass the time. I'm just going to look at it for about 15 minutes. But 15 minutes turns into 30 minutes. 30 minutes turns into 45 minutes. 45 minutes turns into an hour. We find ourselves going back in time, at least in our own memory banks, reliving the moments, reliving the feelings, reliving what funny times we had way back then. We comment on how much hair we used to have. We comment on how our uncle still had an odd choice of clothing back then too. But the more we see these old pictures, the more we realize how much time has elapsed. We also are reminded of some really hard times in our life as well. Those times and seasons in our lives we wanted to forget. But suddenly, we are reminded that we have to swallow that dismal, nostalgic pill once again. It catches us off guard, and and we are there sitting on the couch, having come face-to-face with reality. Our minds are flooded with those sweet and special moments in our lives that we suddenly realize we can never get back. It's gone. It's gone even with someone we loved. We see the uncle or aunt, the mom or dad, the spouse, the childhood friend, or even your own child. And you realize they aren't around anymore. That house or car you were once so proud of, well, someone else is living in that house. And that car, well, it's in some junkyard somewhere. You see, it doesn't take very long when we look at pictures, and sometimes when we look in the mirror, that time is fleeting. It's precious. It's in our possession for a moment. It's in our possession for a season. And then before we even realize it, like trying to catch the wind with our hands, it's gone. Solomon knew this painful enjoyable and mysterious experience too, didn't he? You remember Ecclesiastes chapter 3, right? Most of us only hear it read at funerals. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 and 2, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Time. How much time have you spent in recent days reflecting on how brief and transient time is? How much time have you spent 
considering that one day your time on earth will be over. What does God say we should have on the forefront of our minds if we are to use the time he has given us wisely? If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 90. Psalm chapter 90. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 285. If you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, you can take that Bible in front of you or beside you as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is known as the oldest psalm in the Psalter. And we glean that insight from the fact that the author mentioned in the heading of the psalm was Moses. Look down with me, Psalm 90, look in the heading. We read, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, as you may recall, Moses was the God-appointed leader to deliver his covenant people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Moses would also become the central person that God would use to deliver the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. And if you read through the books like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, we read of how Moses was given the charge to deliver all the instructions about worship at their tabernacle and about civil case laws that God's people were to obey. Moses would also be detected as the Old Covenant mediator who would intercede on behalf of God's people in the best of times. And in the worst of times, Moses was charged to stand in the gap, intercede and mediate between God and man as he would lead them through the wilderness years as they were taught to learn to trust in their God one day at a time. And if Israel was faithful to God and faithful to the covenant they had made with God, they would receive all the covenantal blessings that they would enjoy freely and fully in the promised land. But if you are familiar with the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy in particular, you know that almost an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness. They would die because of their hardened hearts. The subtle but poisoning effect of unbelief had crept into their lives. They became obstinate rebels to the one true God instead of humble worshipers of him. You see, the sin of unbelief is something all of us can fall into. It just begins with entertaining doubts about God. But if those doubts go unchecked for too long, and we don't bring those doubts to God by humbly trusting his word, unbelief leads to blaming God, accusing or charging God with wrong or injustice. And in most cases, unbelief leads people to actually reject the idea that God is good. And for some, to reject the whole notion that God is even real. 
Well, over time, the unbelief amongst the camp of Israel, it festered into sinful grumbling, idolatry, sexual immorality, even rebellion and divisiveness as they revolted against God's appointed leaders, leaders like Aaron, leaders like Moses. But God's word always proves true, doesn't it? Whatever God says is true, if you don't believe it now, he will make it plain to you in due time. His warning about judgment came true. Many who were given the great privilege to be delivered out of slavery and in bondage in Egypt to worship and serve their good God. The same good God who had promised them blessings and a land where they would be protected by this one true God. Many of them, beloved, forfeited it. They didn't finish the race. They didn't keep the faith. And friends, Moses, Moses himself did not reach the promised land. He had to see it from afar on Mount Nebo. You see, he didn't represent the holiness of God before the people. He failed to appropriately display the reverence of what it means to fear the Lord your God before the people he was given to lead. And at an old age, Moses died. You see, the wages of sin is death. And even Moses, the man of God, wasn't exempt from that curse. Moses would have to face his own mortality. His God-given leadership role did not make him invincible. It did not make him allergic to sin, to suffering, to death. Friends, even the best of men are men at best. Even the greatest of men are still made out of dust. And to dust they shall return. Psalm 90 was penned by this fallible and mortal man of God as a prayer for the people of God. A psalm written to instruct us on what using our time wisely looks like in the fear of God. A wisdom psalm that clarifies for us. It gives us like the windshield wipers, wiping away the fog and the mist that so impairs our vision. It shows us that we can have wisdom and joy and and peace. Even living in a fallen world, plagued by sin Suffering and death. Please follow with me. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. 
For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, and they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. If time goes by fast, and boy does it. And if God is going to hold us accountable to how we live, and he will then what should we do to stay focused on what matters the most? What should we do to stay focused on what matters the most? I've got two main points and then three applications at the end. We'll look at the first two points together. Point number one, we should remember our immortal God. We should remember our immortal God. That's verses one to six. Point number two, we should remember our mortal existence. We should remember our mortal existence. That's verses 7 to 11. Let's look at point number one there. We should remember our immortal God. In this transient life, we're given the number one thing that blocks our vision from seeing what matters most in life is our pride. It's our pride. That's what's hindering us. That begs the question, what is pride? Pride is the me matters the most heart disease. It's a preoccupation with me, myself, and I, where we think much about the creature and very little about the creator. Friends, by nature, we are selfish. You don't have to teach selfishness. It's what we do like breathing air. 
We are self-centered, self-seeking. All our plans are still tainted somewhere along the way with selfish ambition. And from the time we are young, even to our latter years with wrinkles and gray hair, we still can all tend to think and act with the self-deceived notion that we are the hero of the story. We think that we should always get our way. No one should ever get in our way. Everyone should be on my timetable, and if you don't know my needs and what my wants are, I'm going to let you have it. I shouldn't have to tell you twice. I shouldn't have to ask. I shouldn't have to beg. You should know what I want. Friends, if that's ever come out of your mouth, that's pride. Oh, we, we have a good way of showing people when we've had our pride stepped on. We show anger, defensiveness, blame shifting, disdain, passive aggressiveness. We do that because someone has failed our expectations. Friends, how has pride shown itself lately in your life? Would the people who know you the best say that you care more about you than you care about them? Would the people who know you the best say that you talk more about God and his word or more about yourself and what you want? Let's just get real this morning. Everybody is in God's emergency room today. Everybody has got that me matters the most, heart disease. Human experience has told us that truth time and time again. And God's word shouts from the pages of scripture that this has been true even from the fall. Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Friends, we can't fool God. You and I cannot fool God. He searches our hearts and our minds, not just our piggy banks, not just our closet, not just our iPhones, not just things that we tuck away in the closet we don't want anyone to see. No, he searches our hearts and our minds. And friends, pride is what he finds. Pride, the me matters the most heart disease, is what his his omniscient gaze reveals. Friends, that means that we should all humble ourselves. We should get over ourselves, not think so seriously about ourselves, and we should humble ourselves. We should humble ourselves because God already sees. Friends, did not Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, the ones who are blessed, the ones who receive God's kingdom, are those who are poor in spirit? They acknowledge their pride, they acknowledge their sin, and they realize all they have is God's mercy to cling to. 
Friends, it's the humble and the contrite that God says he draws near to. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Friends, if you want to find your purpose in life, then man-centered worship has to die first. And if you can't do that, well, you're sunk. Because there's coming a day where you will stand before this God in judgment. And you will have a rude awakening that this life has always been for him. Friends, we need to first look not to ourselves then. We need to look to God and who he is. In fact, our psalm this morning is beckoning us to cultivate humility by recognizing our human limitations in contrast to God's eternal existence. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here, Moses begins this psalm by calling upon the Lord. Now, specifically in Hebrew, he uses the name Adonai. This describes God as the sovereign one, the supreme ruler over everything that exists. And Moses draws our attention to the sweet assurance that the sovereign one, Adonai, has also been our dwelling place in all generations. Have you ever been on a long trip? This is one of those trips where you've been living out of your suitcase. You don't want to tell the people you're with you've been wearing the same thing for about three days straight. It's that kind of trip. You're eating fast food. You're stuck in traffic for hours on end on the interstate. You're in plane flights and delays. And then finally the trip ends. And then you pull into the driveway. You walk through the doors. You drop the suitcases. And then you give a deep breath with a sigh of relaxing relief. Ah, home sweet home. It's so good to be back home again. Friends, that's exactly how Moses begins this psalm. He describes God as our constant place of comfort, refuge, and help. The Lord has been our dwelling place. He has been our immovable and unshakable home. You see, the Lord had pursued his people, Israel, when they were crying for help with groanings. And then in mercy, God heard their cries and he delivered them. He came for them and he powerfully would raise up even an evil, hard-hearted king like Pharaoh and turn his heart to deliver his people to be freed to serve the Lord. Friends, one of the things you'll notice about the scriptures, if you're planning on reading the Bible this year from front to cover, or even if you do skip around from Old to New Testament, you know what you're going to find over and over again? God is always faithful. God is always faithful. The pages of scripture have God's graffiti all over it. I am faithful. Trust me. 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 In mercy, he forgives sinners. 
In power, he delivers sinners. In his steadfast love, he provides for them. And he leads them where they need to be. There is a promise in the Old and New Testaments that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, when you come home to God, that's what the doormat says. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You may have drifted from me, but I never drifted from you. That's why the longer you know this God, and the more testimonies you can give to other Christians about how God has been gracious and kind and faithful to you, the sweeter that hymn will be when you sing it with the saints. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Isn't that sweet? Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Brothers and sisters, I don't know everything you're going through today. You might be feeling super unsettled in life. The foundations of everything you thought brought you comfort have been kicked out like crutches that cracked. And you might be thinking, man, I feel displaced. I feel uprooted in my life. And to be quite honest with you, Pastor Blake, if someone were to ask me, where's home for you? You don't even know what to tell them. You don't feel like you even have a place you can call home in this life. Brothers and sisters, if your faith is resting in the sovereign one, Adonai, if your hope is in him, you are always at home with him. He is your dwelling place. And that door is open to his children. And friends, he makes his home with us in every generation. So grandparents, if you're worried about the world your grandkids are growing up in, take heart. The God who's been your dwelling place will be their dwelling place, no matter what. As one sister has put it, God sometimes feels silent, but he is never absent. God sometimes feels silent, but he is never absent. Moses then draws our attention from God as the sovereign one, who's always with us, to reminding us that he is the creator God who has always been. Look at verse 2. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, this is what the, how the verse literally reads in the original. Before the mountains were birthed, that's what brought forth is in the Hebrew. It's often used for a woman giving birth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from of old and forever, from of old and forever, you are God. Uh, children, have you ever asked your parents, well, who made God? Parents, have children ever asked you that before? Who, who made God? That's a fine question to ask. 
It's a pretty logical question to ask because as human beings, we all had a beginning, right? I was born in 1985. I have a beginning. And though that's a very fine question to ask, what a wonderful opportunity to teach your children about how God is very different than us. You see, our God is self-sustaining. He is eternal, and he is necessary. He is necessary that there is no possibility in him of ever ceasing to exist. If God did not ever exist, there would be nothing existing. This verse here speaks to God's timelessness, his eternality, his unchangeableness, his immortality. That means that God is the only uncaused one. He had no beginning and he has no end. He is without succession of moments, hours, days, and years like us. If God were given an application to fill out, and I put your name and your birth date, God would sign it years without beginning and years without end. We might watch a baseball game, and we can tell people about the game because we've had to watch each inning, one inning at a time, one inning at a time, one pitch at a time, one hit at a time. And then we can tell people how the game was after we've seen everything in succession and order. Friends, God doesn't view baseball games like that. You know that, right? He sees the first inning and the ninth inning all at once. The past and the future are all present to God all at once. Friends, I don't know if you had your caffeine this morning, but that should make your head hurt. That should make you go, what? Re-listen to it again. And then you're going to find yourself saying, what? Friends, if it hurts your mind, it should. Because if your view of God could fit in a tiny cardboard box that's wrapped with a bow with bubble wrap inside, then your God is too small. And if your God can be fully understood, fully grasped, and put in your own little theological box, he's not a God worth worshiping. Our God will blow our minds because he made them. We are made in his image, but he's not made in ours. We need him to exist. He does not need us. Oh, friends, if you're struggling with pride, drink a dosage of that this morning. Praise be to God. We have a God who's that mind-blowing, and yet he draws near to us as our dwelling place. Friends, that's why we gather as a church every Lord's Day. We gather for the supreme purpose to know this God and to increase in our awe of him. Friends, if you're bored at church, the problem is not with God. The problem is with our hearts. Oh, friends, I pray that God would bust open our tiny little stale boxes we put him in with a grander, more beautiful, biblically saturated view of him 
Because friends, when you get a glimpse of this God, Adonai, he gets really big in our minds and in our hearts. And we, we get really small. We stop thinking so much about us in this brief life we have. In fact, that's exactly what Moses is doing here. He reminds us that God is God and we are not. And in comparison to God, we only exist for a very, 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 very brief amount of time. Look at verses 3 to 6. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Moses now contrasts the timelessness of God with how time-bound we are. In verse 3, we're reminded that God formed us and that God is the ultimate determiner of our time on earth. The reference to dust here, no doubt, is a familiar allusion to what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden when he rebelled against God. He told Adam in Genesis 3, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Friends, that means that every time we get news that someone has died, whether it's a miscarriage of a child, or a mom, or a tsunami taking out an island, anyone in your own home, we should hate death because we ultimately hate sin. We should hate death because we ultimately hate sin. Why does death exist? Don't listen to your atheist friends when they tell you this is how it's always been. No, it hasn't. Not what my eternal God, who's unchanging, says. There was a time where man walked with God and there was no sin. And that means there was no death. Friends, Romans 5, 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And friends, we should never sinfully think God views time the way we do. We, the creature, cannot force God into our own little life schedules. It's a fool's error to think that God is bound by what we block out on our Google calendars. I always get a kick at it when churches say, we're having revival. We're having revival next week. I'm like, so you're calling down Yahweh to fit in a three-hour stint of time to do exactly what you want him to do. We can do that, but it is sheer arrogance to think that we can tell God what to do on our time. He'll work when he wants, how he wants, however frequently he wants. Friends, our relationship with God doesn't work like that. 
He's not a secretary. He's not a flight attendant. Friends, he is the pilot on the plane. He is the CEO of our lives. Friends, we don't tell God to get on our schedule. We ask God to align our thoughts and our plans with his schedule. What did our brother John read earlier from James chapter 4? Didn't you like a shorter scripture reading for a change? All right, if you don't say amen, I'm going to bring out the big ones again. You wait till we get to Psalm 119. James 4, 13 to 15, come now. Come on now, Western world. Come on now, American Christians. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year in trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what your tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a... For you are a... For you are a... A mist. A mist. A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Friends, that's why whatever plans you have this week, hold them loosely. Whatever plans you make for later this year, hold them loosely. Whatever plans you have 10 years from now, hold them loosely. Our times are in his hands, Psalm 31.15. In fact, our days are written in his book long in advance before they even come to pass, Psalm 139, verse 16. You see, we are dependent on alarms and calendars and watches, but God isn't. God doesn't own a Timex or a Rolex. He doesn't need a watch. He doesn't need a smartphone. He isn't bound by time like we are. He is boundless and timeless in a way that we are not. Friends, that's what the poetic language of verse 4 is saying. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Friends, that also means that God's never in a rush either. He's never late, He's never in a hurry. He's always on time. His time is perfect and beautiful. And he answers to no one what he does. Friends, whenever we're tempted to think that God is taking forever, maybe you've been praying the same prayer for three years and you wonder, is it ever going to come to fruition? Is there any point to keep waiting? Is there any reason to keep praying? for God to work in my life, for God to work in that person I care about's life? Or or how about the second coming of Jesus Christ? We've been hearing this for 2,000 years. Christ is returning. Christ is returning. Christ is returning. But what do the scoffers scoff on the universities? What do the scoffers scoff in the workplace? Where is he? Where is the return of Christ? Peter knew that in his day. In the New Testament letter of 2 Peter, Peter picks up Psalm 90 from the depths of the Psalter, brings it to bear on Christians who were faced with that same anxiety-inducing challenge. Where's Christ coming? He says in 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, every time you and I are impatient with the Lord's timing on something, we need to preach verse 4 back to our hearts. For a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Friends, when we are impatient, God remains patient. When we are faithless, He remains faithful. When we think God has forgotten us, or he's running late, or he doesn't understand the pressure that I'm under, God is always on time, every time. Friends, that's because he's outside of time. He sees everything, past, future, and present, all at once. As the old hymn writer William Cooper once penned, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Are you tempted to believe that God has forgotten you? Are you tempted to think that your life is just passing you by and God just seems to kind of put you up on a shelf and rust, kind of be forgotten while everyone else kind of does what their life ambition is? Remember, God is patient. What appears as slowness is really just his perfect timing. Friends, it's never God catching up with what's going on in our life. It's always God bringing us up to speed of what he's doing in ours. Friends, that's that's how God is renewing our minds. We are on his timetable, and we can trust him. That's why it's so humbling. Moses says that our lives will fade off the scene like a flood, overwhelming a city. We're going to fade off the scene like an unremarkable and brief dream. You know, if I asked you, what did you dream about last night? Well, some of you probably don't need to say that out loud. Some of you go, I don't remember. And some of you say, I don't dream anymore. The bottom line is, you remember a dream sometimes just for a few minutes in the morning. You give it a few days and a few weeks, you can't remember it. Moses says, that's what our lives are like. They're brief. In the grand scheme of things, they're unremarkable, and they're gone. 
In fact, Moses takes us to the depths of the humility we need by calling us like blades of grass. Promises in the morning, but before I know it, it withers and dies. Brothers and sisters, if we want to use the time well that we have on earth, we must know who our God is, how he is not like us. We should understand something of his sovereignty, his timelessness, his eternality, and his nearness. And the more we know of this immortal God of the Bible, the bigger he'll become and the smaller we'll become. Puritan author George Swinnick once stated the vast contrast between God and us and how crucial it is for you and I to grasp this gigantic chasm of a difference. He says this, God is incomparable. There is none among the highest, the holiest in heaven or earth like Jehovah. His being is from himself. No other being is its own cause. He is an absolute perfect being and nothing can be added to him or taken from him. Man is in need of continual additions to sustain him. He needs air to breathe, food to strengthen him, raiment to cover him, fire to warm him, sleep to refresh him, righteousness to justify and save him. Man is a heap of infirmities, a hospital of diseases, and a bundle of imperfections. God is unchangeable in his being, incapable of the least alteration. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is eternal with no beginning, succession, or end. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. There is no succession in his duration. He dwells in one indivisible point of eternity. There is no past. There is no to come with God. He enjoys his whole eternity every moment. Nothing in the least has been added to his duration since the world was. His name is I Am. Not I was or shall be. Amen. Get it, George. Praise God. We need a little more of that kind of theology running rampant in our churches and a little less of this joke in the Coke stuff where man thinks he's all that impressive. Friends, we're not. But he is. That brings us to our second point. Point number two, we should remember our mortal existence. We should remember our mortal existence. Friends, if we, as we stare at God's perfections, as we stare at his beauty, as we stare at how great and marvelous and mind-blowing he is, well then, and only then, should we look at ourselves. And what do we find? We find our mortality and our imperfections. Verses 7 to 11 Moses not only reminds us again of how brief and transient our lives are, but he then brings out the relationship between God's wrath and judgment against our sin. Look at me in verse 7. He says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? One question you ought to be asking yourself is, why is God's anger and his wrath mentioned in this psalm? Remember, Moses has seen God's wrath firsthand. 
He saw thousands of people swallowed up in Korah's rebellion. He saw almost a whole generation lose their sight of fearing God as number one. And Moses saw with his own eyes God's wrath come down. If anyone knew something of the fierce and just wrath of God, it was Moses. The sin of man warrants the wrath of God. The sin of man warrants the wrath of God. And friends, God can reveal his wrath in a number of ways. He can reveal his wrath by removing his restraining grace from our lives. Romans chapter 1. He can send calamities upon the earth. He can give people over to their sinful hearts to listen to false teachers and ungodly influences. He can put people to death immediately if he chose to. But friends, on the final day, the day of judgment, God will cast all unforgiven sinners to an eternal hell. Because even just one sin against an eternal Holy and just God warrants the eternal and everlasting wrath of God. Friends, what is hell? Hell is not a place where God is absent. Hell is a place where God's everlasting indignation is poured out as a just punishment on those who do not love him and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, To my non-Christian friend here today, I know it might be a hard Sunday to walk in and hear things about God's wrath. The most loving thing to tell you is that if you don't know this God, you're in trouble. How much time have you spent in the life God's given you thinking about God's anger towards you? His righteous displeasure towards your sin against him. Have you considered why hell even exists? If you haven't, look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Friends, God sees and knows everything about us. He knows the secrets and the secret sins of our life. That lust, that envy, that hatred, that violence, stealing, gossip, grumbling, and idle words we've uttered behind closed doors. Friends, he knows the history on our internet pages. He knows the things you never want your parents to ever find out about you. He knows things you've done that would get you fired in your job. He knows things that would even have your spouse no longer trust you if they knew what went through your mind. Friends, he knows everything about us. You know, one of the kids' games we've grown to love over the years is hide and go seek. It's a fantastic game. If you get older, you might tweak a knee if you do it, though. We can fool our families. We can fool our friends. We can find the best hiding spots in that game. 
But life, my friends, is not a game. God sees everything. You can run. I can run. But you cannot hide. We are all naked and exposed to him whom we must give an account. Uh, To those of us who are Christians, I think verse 8 still should cause each one of us to have some personal reflection, some personal examination. Friends, if we've committed secret sin, sin that we have deliberately hidden from others in our lives, and we don't confess it, we don't repent from it, friends, it's only going to bring shame and disgrace when it's brought out in public in due time. Friends, I don't know what you're hiding in your life today, but I can tell you this. If you think your sin will never catch up with you, that's a lie. That lie has been bought hook, line, and sinker by so many men and women since the very beginning. Whenever you see someone you thought was godly fall, preach this to your heart, they did not fall, they slid. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Friends, no one falls into sin. They slide into it first. It's the secret sins that will devour a man, devour a woman, and your sin, my friend, will find you out. You need that kind of courage and boldness said to you. You and I are like walking ice chesses. The more we live in this frozen tundra of a fallen world, our hearts can grow hard to sins that we pet. What we all need is that fire of God's purifying, sanctifying warmth to thaw us out once again. Friends, my pastor in my mid-20s, he once gave a good word of advice, stay clean from secret sin and stay close to Jesus. Stay clean from secret sin and stay close to Jesus. Friends, ask God to give you a hatred of whatever secret sin that might be going on in your life. And friends, I would encourage each one of us to have at least one friend in your life, a godly friend that you can share a secret sin that you've been battling and you've been petting so that they can care for you. They can shepherd you. Friends, your pastor needs friends like that. Your elders need friends like that. And you need friends like that. None of us are exempt from sliding and falling into sin. Well, friends, life is short, isn't it? Even if you live to be 70 or by reason of strength, 80. Verse 10 says they are soon gone and they fly away. Friends, as we remember God's immortality and we remember our frail human mortality, how should we live then? If God's exposing our pride and bringing us down to our humble state, then how do we know what matters most in this very brief life? Well, praise be to God, Moses continued writing the psalm. I think he drives our attention to three things we should cling to. These are a little quicker here. Number one, cling to God's wisdom. Number two, cling to God's steadfast love. Number three, cling to God's power. Cling to God's wisdom. Cling to God's steadfast love. 
cling to God's power. Look at number one, cling to God's wisdom. Look with me down in Psalm 90, verse 12. This is a great one to add to your daily prayer life. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Friends, we should daily cling to God's wisdom so we know how to make the best use of the time. Friends, that's just another way of praying this. Lord, teach me to recognize I'm going to die. Lord, teach me to recognize that one day I'm going to die. Now, what are some practical things we can do beyond just praying that prayer? Here's a few. Use wise judgment on this one. But incorporate testimonies in your family, in your family worship time, to talk about moments where you've had to face the death of a loved one. This past week, on Wednesday or Tuesday, I can't remember what day it was, when we were having our family worship time, I read parts of Psalm 90 to our family. And I thought our kids, minus Titus, but he doesn't remember a whole lot, uh, could begin to understand that daddy has lost people in his life that he loves at a young age. And so I shared a story about how at 18 years old, I walked with a girl who lost her boyfriend in a horrific car wreck. A guy I was throwing touchdowns to just nine months earlier. At 18 years old, that's that body and that casket was the best and loudest sermon to a guy like me needed to hear because my pursuits were vain. The me matters the most heart disease was pumping out my veins at 18 years old. And God used this, this motionless body, this vessel of an 18-year-old boy to say, wake up, Blake Boylston. Wake up, Blake Boylston. Eternity's before you. And I shared that with the family. Maybe you, using wise judgment with your situation, think about ways that God's used death to wake you up to how brief this time is. Secondly, spend time with older believers. Now, you don't need to tell them they're old. But if they're older than you, if they've seemed to walk this world in this life, following Jesus longer than you, spend time with them. You know, I always have to bite my tongue when people say, well, I left this church to go to this one because there were no young people there. There was no one like me there. You know, one of the reasons I am so glad to be in Arkansas and not at my former church anymore, it was just nothing but young people at the other church. And young people have a lot of wonderful things to contribute to the body of Christ. But I want my kids to see funerals. I want my kids to see 85 and 90-year-olds singing with joy, great is my faithfulness. That's what I want my kids to see. That's what's going to help them grow. Friends, incorporate into your life older saints who can tell you what they've learned about how to use your time wisely in this very brief life. Number three, as believers, friends, we should talk more about heaven. We should talk more about heaven. This might be the only time I was tempted to jump in the air. We should talk more about heaven. Oh, friends, Christians should be homesick for heaven. Homesick. It should groan in us and yearn in us. Friends, you and I should feel homeless here. 
We should feel uprooted. We should feel like we don't belong. We should feel a little unsettled. You know why? Because we're pilgrims. This is not our dwelling place. He is. What did Paul say? It would be better to depart from this body and be at home with the Lord. That's not poetic language. That was a reality in his heart. Friends, let's stir up one another when we sing, when we read scripture, when we pray. When a saint dies, grieve, but grieve is one who has hope. Rejoice. We lost them, but they went home. Talk like that. Pray like that. Encourage one another. We're going home. A little homesickness would be good for the American church. Because, friends, if you're a little too much at home here, you won't be longing for heaven there. Oh, friends, and number four, come up with little sayings that just kind of jolt you. If you get an email from me, I started doing this. I got inspired by R.C. Sproul, who's now at home with the Lord. I changed the language a little bit. Can't really do much better than R.C. could. But at the bottom of my emails, I often put, today counts for eternity. I do that not for you, but really for me. <laughs> right here in the pulpit, Susan Hannon did this for me. Today counts for eternity. Preach, pray, and sing like it. Today counts for eternity. So when you're going through a mundane mon Monday, pray to your heart. Today counts for eternity. Number two, cling to God's steadfast love. Look at verses 13 to 15. Return, O Lord, how long? How have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Friends, Psalm 90 is really like a damp blanket on our bodies. Because it reminds us of some painful things in this life. We've been reminded it can feel unsettled and lonely. We can feel like we don't have a home in this world. We have experienced wave and wave after disappointment, death, sickness, suffering, affliction. None of us are immune to it. Friends, we've been hearing about God's wrath and our secret sins and that no man or woman can be our Savior. Moses was a man of God, but he was still a man at best. Friends, the good news is one greater than Moses did come. One that would be a far superior deliverer than Moses could ever have become. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And John tells us he dwelt among us. He had no beginning. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1 says. Truly God, yet truly man, he did not speak much about who his mama was. He did not speak much about what town he grew up in, but he did speak about how he's always existed. Remember John 8, 58? He told the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who put on flesh and made his home among us. Jesus stood in the gap, bearing the wrath of God for sinners like you and I, even our secret sins. 
bearing the penalty that we deserve, and then God raised him from the dead and calls us to give our whole life to him. Friends, Jesus Christ is who can brighten our days, even when they're dark. Jesus Christ living in us by his spirit, making his home in us, helps us, reminds us day in and day out that the best is still yet to come. Satisfy us, King Jesus, with your love all our days. And then lastly, number three, cling to God's power. Cling to God's power. We should ask God to strengthen us to do his work in his way. Look at verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God's work must be done in God's way or God is not in it. Elders, Tom, Alan, lay leaders, Bible teachers, God's work must be done in God's way or God's not in it. Members of CCBC, as we consider our life and ministry together this year, we should go to the Bible to find out how God wants us to worship him. May we go to the Bible to find out how God wants us to care for our marriages. May we go to the Bible to find out how God wants us to raise our kids. May we go to the Bible to find out how God wants us to prioritize our time, our money, and our talents. Friends, we should go to the Bible for everything. For in the scriptures, we have the living and abiding word of God. Brothers and sisters, before we know it, this will be a long time ago. Before we know it, this will be a long time ago. In hell, every second will feel like a year. In heaven, every year will feel like a second. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would teach us to number our days. That we, as a church body, would have a heart of wisdom. Lord, I also pray that you would humble and sober us of our own pride that gets in the way of really knowing why this life even exists anyway, why you even made us. And Lord, I also pray that you would establish the work of our hands. Lord, we want to stand before you and receive the reward for work done in your way. Lord, we pray you teach us how to do that with whatever time you give us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.